From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with filmmakers Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild. Being open and honest about not knowing the next step to take, um, how to continue to create art in a way that um, not only satisfies you, but satisfies an audience, because that's really why we're doing this. Nobody really wants to have those conversations. No one wants to appear weak inside of the art that they're creating. And, and I think in order for us to really begin to understand what it is that we need to start doing to meet expectations of audiences and things like that is have is being is being willing and able to have those kind of discussions with each other. Stick around for my conversations with Chad Hofschild and Dorothy Borium right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild, filmmakers and overall proponents of the arts in Nebraska. They run Nebraska Independent Film Projects, or NIFP, which helps organize local filmmakers and provide resources to those who need them. They've also made several films that are now on Amazon Prime, including Wake the Witch and Corruptor. We spoke via Zoom. We've kind of been in the periphery of each other's artistic endeavors for a few years here but i don't know if we ever actually gotten to know each other in any meaningful way you guys though you've done probably as much as anybody has to try to foster actual opportunities for working within film and other creative endeavors uh in nebraska i mean there's not a whole lot of people who have a whole lot of tangible work that's sort of set up something close to what you need to have a viable film community that actually can work together and have workspace so First off, I'm just curious, you know, why, why why is it that you guys are some of the only people doing that? Why is why is it so rare? Whew. I feel I've always felt lucky that Chad and I have such a strong partnership because I feel like that is a huge part of, you know, it takes a village to make a movie. That's mm-hmm. kind of what it feels like. And to do any kind of long-term creative stuff. But the cool thing about the partnership with Chad is we were always about or wanted to always be about like um, raising helping other people be a part of stuff too. And so, you know, we kind of revitalized NIFP for a period of time. It's definitely gone dormant now. And really we're excited about reaching out to a lot of people and helping to support stuff. Cause you know how it is like without that community support, we're all just a bunch of silos, like trying to steal each other's resources. A community. Yeah. That kind of community is hard. I mean, I think, I think, um, regardless of the art that you sort of find yourself in I think everybody well everybody has their own projects everybody wants to do their thing and to 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 find the people that you get along with well enough that you're all able to share pieces of uh and share time with each other to to work on those type of projects and work on each other's project that's it's hard I mean people are into their own thing and you know, they they uh, finding time to work on other people's stuff, especially when you're not quite sure if that work is going to be uh, like ha- that those resources are going to come back around to you in any way. I mean, let's let OK, let's face it. I think most filmmakers, artists, musicians, we are sort of we want to make our own stuff. Right. I don't want to use the word selfish, but I just did. So and and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. But I think once you once we can all sort of make make a decision that, yes, that's kind of the way we are. Now, let's see if we can adjust and start helping each other out a little bit. That's the hard part. Was it always a goal for you to get to that community level building or was it just because there wasn't much of an infrastructure and you wanted there to be one? And the only way to get there was to actually build it. I think it was that we knew it needed an infrastructure and we wanted to build it. I yeah. think that Dorothy and I, we our, our relationship sort of began inside of community, I think, if we're going to use those words. True, that's fair. The, uh, Nebraska Independent Film Projects um, is a is a filmmaking organization. There's, there's And there are, obviously, there are a few filmmaking organizations in Nebraska. But I think what set NIFP apart, at least from in the beginning, is that we were all people who were actually, you know, down and dirty making stuff. 
didn't have to be great high-end big big resource work but we were all doing something and uh, Dorothy actually came to a premiere of two short films that some friends of mine uh, and and I uh, had done and that was I mean oh my god we met somebody who was actually I mean no this was like when was this 1999 probably so it's like 21 years ago and we were all like no one else is doing this because this is like the this is Lincoln, Nebraska. I mean, I mean, we don't have a peer group to sort of bounce it off of. But actually, we did, and uh, Dorothy came to a to, to that premiere, and um, we got involved in NIFP, and suddenly there was a community where we were sharing ideas. We were excited. You're meeting people that want to do the same kind of stuff as you. I mean, it's hard for like a hardcore documentarian, um, and you know, a weird, whimsical comedy short creator to sort of get together. But because there was both of those and, and more of those type of people at NIFP. But when you, f- when you find those people that are interested in doing the same kind of work you, you are, which Dorothy and I, we kind of clicked right away. And it was a while before we started actually working together. But that's how relationships work, right? You, you meet people that are kind of like-minded and you hang out and hope. Yeah, this could work. Well, so. so let's go back to the beginning then. When did you both first fall in love with film? Oh, man. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you know what's funny is I always think that I used to tell people that it had to do with Star Wars. And then later I was like, I think, no, it was more about Terminator. But I was a huge fan right away of the incredibly strong magic that film brings. Like, you know, it is like a a community conscious dream when you sit in a theater and watch something with a group of people and everyone walks out, everyone has their own individual take on it. Yes. But you do tend to walk out with like a sense of universality. Like you've all dreamed the same thing together and whatever that is, excitement, adventure, fear, laughter, etc. And I really wanted to be a part of making something that powerful. But at the time for me, I didn't think that you could just do that. I grew up in a small South Carolina town. So I was like, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get to make posters for movies that are cool. It wasn't until way later where I was like, I get anybody can be a director, but I want to be a director. I'm going to be, I'm going to make movies too. When was so, that point for you? When did you decide you could actually do it? I bet I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and I had hooked up with some people that were making documentaries and um, low budget horror movies, kind of. This was when everyone was still basically shooting on film. And it was actually um, like a Matthew Liebetik film. It was the first film that he shot before he graduated from whatever the American cinematography blah, blah in LA and it was called Redneck. So we were in Nebraska shooting. And that was the moment that I realized one, it took a village to make a film and two, you could just get access to a camera, which is hard I think for people to understand these days. But at the time it was like a big deal. If you could get access to a camera and then editing equipment, you could do anything. And so that's when I was like, yeah, I started making short films right then. So have you always been drawn to, then to those sort of like heavy genre sort of things? You know, because it seems like an independent film. You definitely have your two spheres: one who completely embrace genre, and one who you know. You, we we both, we represent this spectrum, I think, because you guys are very genre, and I'm like, you know, no plot, no plots. It's all going to be just people, real reality. <laughs> uh, but so you're in the opposite one. I mean, so you were you always in that, or did you experiment with uh, the other type of independent sort of movies? Pretty much always genre. Okay. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Okay. So Chad, let's go to you then. What was your story? Oh man. What my origin story. Excellent. (laughs) Um, (laughs) the story isn't all that different. I think than I mean, certainly not that, not that different than Dorothy's. And I bet that not that different than yours or any other filmmaker in, in that you, I just, this, this medium of pictures with sound was just so, yeah, so powerful. And, and I do, I mean, I, I loved all that genre stuff from, from the eighties. I mean, uh, stuff that just, yeah, they just sucked me in and they kept me there. You know, we got, you know, adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. We got battle beyond the stars. We got, uh, of course, star Wars and everything after it. Um, yes. Um, Terminator, um, 
you know, just drop a John Carpenter film, you know, several of them just right in there. And, and yeah, it was, they were, to me, that was all incredibly powerful stuff. And like Dorothy, I didn't think that was anything that I could do, you know, especially yeah, growing up in a small town in South Dakota. I'm like, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I, closest thing I had, uh, access to um uh a camera for, as far as camera would be concerned is a you know one of those old kodak point and clicks right those little you know you put the film in it and you click it and then you take it to the yeah what was i going to do i was i so i go to college for you know communications and some art classes and bounce around for a while until i finally decide at some point that you know what i'm i'm uh not doing anything here i might as well spend some time in Los Angeles. So I just, so I go to, I go to Los Angeles and between San Diego and LA and I'm, um, it's the early nineties. So I'm like, you know, I might as well do stand up and see if somebody will give me, you know, a sitcom. Cause that's what you did in the nineties. And no, of course I didn't get a sitcom. You might've noticed. Um, but I, what I learned a lot about myself in those moments that I wasn't the, I, I just didn't love it. I mean, I wasn't the kind of person that, that wanted to, do that stand-up comedian uh, thing, right? Mm. So yeah, I end up back in I, uh, South Dakota for a while, uh, then to Atlanta, Georgia, and finally decided that you know, I'm, if I'm gonna, I'm gonna write. I decide, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna write stories because I've been writing stories since I was five years old with my adventure people. So you know, I might as well write words on a, put words on a piece of paper and see if other people will say them. And at that point I decided if I'm going to see any of this produced, I better learn how to do it myself. So I find myself in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, after running out of money and going to art school in LA, but a buddy of mine was going to grad school and the rest is here. I got here, bought a high millimeter Sony camera and, um, shot our first several short films and met Dorothy and boom, here we are. Well, so, okay. So stand up was on the table then. Um, and I, not to say that there's not a lot of humor in the projects I've seen from yours, but I would have guessed, I don't know. I mean, were you drawn originally to trying to make broader comedy at a certain point? All the shorts that I did um, up before Dorothy and I decided, decided to start making features were, were comedies. My very first feature actually called declaration of independence about a guy desperately trying to put together uh, his first, uh, his first uh, independent feature film, not at all autobiographical, by the way, not even a little bit. Get that smirk off your face. It, it wasn't. I, okay, um, sure. <laughs> I'll say I believe you. No one will know what my face looks like when they hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I started um, in comedy, and I will. Let's just transition a little bit to our to our genre pictures, and we made a. Uh, we we made a decision early on that um, we were going to make genre pictures because of the distribution um, that was available for for those kind of movies. At the time, we we decided that there were really th I think three genres in independent pictures that would that end up on blockbuster shelves. And for those of you who don't remember blockbuster, this was a, this was an actual physical location you would go to and you would pick up at first VHS tapes. They were big, these big block plastic things with actual tape in them. Um, and then they made what they called DVDs, which were round silver discs that actually, if you put in the right kind of thing, would show you pictures. It's amazing technology. Um, but we went to, and we walked the, the aisles and we were like, okay, horror films. Um, gay and alternative lifestyle films. Um, and there was, and, uh, ah, yes. Um, faith-based films and, um, horror was the only one that, that both Dorothy and I could really felt like we had any right to <laughs> tell stories inside of. So. Well, these were ones that you mean you could make them on a very low budget and still get that far. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, it literally was blockbuster. It wasn't like, you know, you went to some seminar and somebody told you this. You just, you guys no. came to this on your own. We had done the research. Both Chad and I were constantly like on two tracks, how to make the best possible thing we can make with no money and how to get that thing in front of 
people so we could get distribution. And sometimes we would wander through Blockbuster just picking up stuff going, could we have made this? Did you see this? And I was reading, you know, articles about it. And then this happened. A friend of mine said, oh my God, I saw the worst movie I've ever seen. I rented it at Blockbuster. It's called Fear of Clowns. And I was like, so she's describing it like the effects are terrible. I'm like, I have to see this movie. So I go and rent it literally right away. Go and get it, watch it. And then the next day I was like, we can make a movie that Blockbuster will care. <laughs> that is not a problem. We just need to get it in front of the right, whatever that is. And that was like a huge game changer for us, realizing that, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it ultimately gave us permission. Yes. To make something, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's almost like there's there's this push that you only want to watch the best because you want to sort of like educate yourself on what, what sure. are the best people doing. And then sometimes yeah. you, you lose track of how bad so much of what's out there is. And I think there is almost <laughs> nothing more motivating than bad art that's successful to some extent. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild, filmmakers behind movies like Wake the Witch and Corruptor, which are currently available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, so so what year roughly was this then when you guys were coming to this epiphany? 97, 98. Okay. And you guys had decided Maybe, to yeah. join forces. Was it, it that, was it that late already? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. So 2004, I guess you guys decided to join forces. Um, you didn't have, it wasn't like you knew specifically which projects you already wanted to do. Were there like dream genre projects, horror projects you want, or stories you wanted to tell? Not, not really. Okay. Here's what had happened. I worked on Declaration of Independence. Okay. And cause Chad wrote, um, a character for me. So I got to be a part of that. That was cool. Not at all. Autobiographical. Not at all. And I got to watch his production process, which was very just him primarily carrying that ball. And then I made a short or two. And then I decided that because where Chad was often comedy, I was like weird, dreamy, crazy fantasy stuff. <laughs> so I made a long short called Chaos and Fortune. And that was, I wrote a character for Chad and also was like, help me make this. So we had this experience of like shooting for a week or almost two weeks of making this short and then, you know, all the post-production involved with that. And then Chad and our friend Andrew started this um, actual corporation, Unfiltered Entertainment. And I wasn't like a part of that going in on the ground floor. That was, I think, primarily Andy and then Chad, like we're gonna really make this pro, like paperwork and everything. Then when I found out about it, I was like, I know that you're gonna include me in this, right? And they were like, oh, yeah, of course we are. That's the way uh, she remembers it. I remember I remember walking into the room almost already on my knees begging <laughs> to be a part of this organization. That's what I, that's the way I remember it. Maybe you were were you playing it cool like you wanted her but you didn't quite want to bring it up just to make Dude, it seem I'm I'm not cool, okay? No. <laughs> But here's the crazy thing is we were maybe all writing synopses of what our first thing was going to be. And I think we all had just sort of agreed without a lot of conversation that it was clearly going to be a horror movie. And honestly, to some degree, I feel like it kind of came down to who finished their script first yep. and how much they were ready to like lead the charge. Yep. And that just happened to be me. I'd written out this complicated synopsis and finished it and was like, I clearly cannot make this about aliens and the freaking Masons and the Lincoln Capitol. I was like, we'll never be able to get in there and shoot. So then I was like, what do we have in that classic Rodriguez way? Like I've got this, you know, Katana and a park and whatever. So I wrote Wake the Witch and then crushed out a script and was like, guess what guys, we're going to start making this at X. Like, so get ready because we're about to have a meeting about that. You, you didn't decide to all write something together. It was a competition of solo writing efforts. Um, we thought of it as a competition necessarily, did we? No, no, I don't think necessarily. I think, I think it, we were all writing. We were all doing something and, and, and Dorothy is totally right. It just came down to who was ready first. And that's kind of the way it's been since really it's, it's sure. been in, you know, I think that, um, that, that Dorothy tends to be a lot more, she just makes, she just writes more stuff than, than Andy or I do. 
And um, but but it went back and forth for 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 a while. Or Dorothy's, I mean, Dorothy did uh, Wake the Witch, and then um, I wrote uh, the first draft of of um, Blood Rights, and then you know Dorothy helped. Dorothy did help sort of punch that up. And really, as we've gone along, we've become much more collaborative in the writing process than we were in the beginning. And I think that's only made our stuff better and more interesting. So, Okay, so Wake the Witch, what's the plan then? So you're deciding this is going to be the one, you're going to figure out how to distribute it. It's going to be, you know, the first one really to launch this new company. How do you go about the logistics of putting something like that together? I think our real first plan was how can we produce this at the highest level of the resources that we have available? We did know a couple of things about distribution that, so that we planned ahead. We made sure that we had an onset photographer because we knew that that was a huge deal to be able to have high level photos of action in the moment. And there were a couple of other things I'm trying to remember. I think maybe we had someone writing blogs so that there was a little bit of buzz. And this was before your social media capital had to be so high before a distributor would take it on. And we worked hard to make a cool poster. That was a big deal. Having like a really good poster. But the, so the distribution of it really like happened in a surprising way. And I always, I like this because it has to do with courtesy. Mm-hmm. At the end of the film's credits, we wanted to thank like a variety of, biz, of companies that, you know, you always see that like, oh, Panavision and these lenses. And I was like, you know, we had used this camera. It was like a JVC camera, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, We've used this JVC camera to shoot it, and I wanted to use their logo at the end of the credits. So I called them in California and talked to a lovely woman. And I was like, let me explain what's going on. This is what I'd like. I, I don't know what would be appropriate. Will you just, what do you think? And she was like, you know what? I'm going to connect you to our marketing department because this story sounds fascinating, and I think they'd be interested in it. And we just caught like that perfect edge where the guy who answered the phone, the market was like, yeah, what we'd love. Could we set up some interviews for you guys? And then maybe like hook you up. But we want people to know that this weird little horror indie film is, you know, has used our camera at the time to make this movie. And he was like, you probably don't really have any good like set photos. And I was like, oh yes, we do. <laughs> he was like, well, I don't know, maybe like a poster. And I was like, check this out. And then they were just like, great. And that's how that happened. Yeah. So and from there, he hooked us up with some some uh, in- industry writers. And we yeah. had like write-ups in some of the bigger online magazines that dealt with this stuff. And suddenly... Distributors just started calling, calling us. us. Hey, you have distribution for your film? We'd love to help you out. And so where did it land? It got picked up um, by Gravitas originally. And that was a pretty sweet deal for us. The guy who brokered that, it's kind of complicated. He's like just looking constantly for small, low budget films to sweep in. And then he would hand them off to Gravitas and they would, you know, do like a VOD run on some cable channels and they would put it on all of the, whatever was available digitally. And then we said to Mark, Hey, We'd really love to get on Netflix. Like that's our holy grail right now. Because clearly, of course, we're not going to get distribution. And Blockbuster was pretty much done at that point. So we yeah. were like, man. And he was like, yeah, I'll see what we can do. And then he called us one day and was like, yeah, they're going to pick it up for like three years. So here are your checks. No, it really wasn't like that. It was more like, so yeah, don't like quit your day job. I'm talking with filmmakers Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild. We'll continue the conversation after the break, right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. 
If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm talking today with Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild about their journey in filmmaking, which included getting a Netflix streaming deal for their film Wake the Witch. Currently, their films can be found on Amazon Prime. So Netflix, so, okay, what year did it make it onto Netflix? All right, so... I believe it was on from 99... No, what am I saying? 99. 2009, excuse me. Okay. See, I'm like a, I'm like a decade behind. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> so 2009 to 2011 or 12. Okay, so at that point, Netflix was... I mean, it was like the hot new thing, but it wasn't as big as it is now, right? We got so lucky because they had just lost their stars library. Like the licensing had ended for it and they were desperate for content. I'm pretty sure that's how it worked. So they were just like, bring it on. We need to fill these digital slots or whatever they were doing. So it makes it on Netflix. You guys must've been really excited that that happened and it worked. Oh yeah. That was super exciting. Absolutely. The joy of being able to say when people are like, oh, where can I see it? Oh, you just check it out on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's yeah. that's about as good as it gets, you know, even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, so then that one comes out. Uh, it's on streaming. You, you made it. You did it. What the, what was the next step? Good lord, what was the next step? Yeah, I mean, at that point, you 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 got to make another one. Yes. Right. Was that daunting, yeah. or was that like you guys were ready to take whatever you'd learned from the first one and then do something better? I I think um, you know both. Right. We were, I think we learned so much yes. walking through the product, the, the, the wake the witch, um, the whole process. Yeah. We learned a bunch and, um, we, yes, we were ready to sort of, you know, um, move that into the next piece, what we would do different, mm-hmm. um, what we would, what we could do better, how we would better manage our resources, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then also to push ourselves a little bit, um, inside of the, that genre of filmmaking, to see what we could do that would be maybe a little bit different. Um, better is, is, is a, is probably is the word that we, I mean, we used a lot. We need to do it better. I don't know if we really knew exactly what that really meant as we went into the blood rights, but we sure, um, we sure wanted to be better. What were some of the lessons you were taking into it from the first one? I remember the one thing that we definitely, when, as we were putting together, even be, if, as we were starting to write, I think it was like we have to do something that isn't that that doesn't cross you know ten to fifteen locations. We have to narrow that down because that's time consuming and and it sucks your energy to go from location to location to location. Um, scheduling that is harder. Um, all of that stuff. So we wanted to use a lot of that energy in other places. So we decided to to write something that sort of just happened in a place and maybe had two or three max other locations that we could go to for short periods of time um so that's sort of where um blood rights what what blood rights grew from was the need to keep things smaller keep the world smaller did you wanted to do better lighting i remember that because that was part of having sets where we could lock stuff in and then leave it and then tweak it and do like dolly moves and whatever that was a big deal and we wanted to up our effects game so that the practical effects, like the blood and the blood, you know, stuff like that, that we had someone there to really help us with that. Well, and so um, when you're making this one, are you basically feeling like we'll be able to figure out some distribution plan? It's not like starting over from scratch at this time, right? We did, I feel like, think that we were right. pretty hushed. <laughs> we thought we had this figured out. Let me tell you something. We didn't. Because in the two years between us getting distribution for um, Wake the Witch and us finishing Blood Rites, the whole distribution landscape changed. Changed again. So much. Yeah. One of the big things that we wanted to do, too, with 
blood rights was we wanted a surround sound audio mix. That was a big deal for us. So we spent a lot of time to put that together. And when we reached out to Mark, he was like, yeah, Mark Bosco with Gravitas. He was like, yeah, okay, but I need all the rights. Because with Wake the Witch, we had ultimately split the foreign rights and the domestic rights. And that was just everyone understood like, yeah, that's how that happens. But now he was like, we need all the rights. And Chad had been talking with a guy who had been like, just give me the foreign rights to something, something. Right. We'd kind of made like a a gentleman's agreement that that was going to happen. And then it just all kind of went. Yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening with it? Blood rights. um, Wow. What an interesting thrill ride that was. Um, All we, we ended up, um, I guess the rights, all the rights ended up going with this company that I had talked to about the foreign rights because um, we got in the, when Bosco sort of backed out with, uh, with his deal, then suddenly the, um, the, the unite, the, the, we'll call them the North American rights were open. Yeah. So um, uh, this new, this, this guy I was talking to, um, he said he'd take both rights. Um, he took them, um, ended up, Blood Rights ended up being a DVD release for a deal he was working with that had to do with, um, what was that magazine, Dorothy? Fetish that? magazine called a Girls f- and Corpses. Yeah. It was their first release. Yeah. What? Not everybody gets to say that. Tom. <laughs> and they probably feel good about that. But whatever, that's not important. And we had, um, we had a... Uh, we had to create a M and E tracks for it because it was, uh, it became available in like, uh, a couple of Asian markets. So it had been dubbed in, in, um, it, it was a weird experience. And I think it was like, as Dorothy said, it was like right on the edge of that. What, what we assumed was traditional distribution where you would sell rights to territories, yeah. money would come in and then, you know, yay, that's great. That's what we wanted, but that really didn't exist in the way that it used to anymore. So we ended up um, finally getting the rights back to it um, after, um, I think it was a five-year deal. Was it three? Like a three-year deal. And we finally took the rights back, and then we gave them to our the, 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 the company that distributed, was our secondary distributor on um, Wake the Witch, which in, in has easily been uh, the, most, the easiest uh, distributor to work with. Um, by far, but, uh, and, and, and unfortunately saw very little money from, uh, from blood rights that, uh, you know, you, we learned a lot again mm-hmm. about that distribution game. Uh, but then when it came time for the next movie distribution, had, had changed again. Yeah. So I guess every time it probably so, feels like you have to reinvent the wheel and figure it all out. And then especially yes. since, since you're thinking yeah. about distribution from the very beginning, it's got to be even harder to plan, like from the time you're having ideas to whatever it'll be when you're actually done. Right. Unless you can turn a movie over in, in really nine, six to nine months, which we can't, <laughs> not at the, at the, at the level that we want, want to do them at. Right. So yeah, you just don't know. It just, it, it just, changed so quickly on us so which so. was the next one then we did corruptor between um blood rights and corruptor we tried a couple of other things we did some shorts we did some web series we tried to take advantage of what you know the internet was supposed to change the rules and it kind of didn't and corruptor okay so what was the plan with that one what are you anticipating as you're making that one what the distribution market will be and then how did that if affect the type of movie you were making at that point, honestly, here is where we are such not business people. We're just freaking artists. We really were working more along the lines of, oh, we've done these genre, you know, kind of these genre horror things where we've had these hardcore influences from our mind, like Jalo or, you know, J-horror. I want to make like a demonic possession film, but in a weird way. We never, I mean, we just kind of kept to the horror can be distributed. And we knew that Eagle One, which was our, our secondary distributor for Wake the Witch, would carry probably almost anything that we made. We had a really good relationship with um, them. And so I was just like, let's just make another one and let's see what we can do. At that point, we were more like, can we make the storytelling tighter? Can we continue to make the production 
faster, like our big challenges with Corruptor were shoot it in half the time and edit it in half the time because we had continually, for Blood Rights and Wake the Wish, taken like two years, two years in post because we were so like, oh, I want it to be whatever. Mm-hmm. How long were you shooting so, for? Up so, until that point, I think we were at like between 28, yeah. 25 and 28 days for the first two features. Yeah. And I think we got Corruptor down to 15, 14, That's 15 right. days. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's almost the opposite of what people usually try to do. You guys were trying to be more efficient like that. Most people are like, how can we shoot fewer pages per day? Um, <laughs> but you, you felt you could handle it. Like you knew, you knew enough to be able to pull that off and keep it up to your standard. One thing I think that um, Dorothy and I have, began to realize as we worked on other people's projects and then came back to ours was that our, one of our biggest strengths is organization. And I mean, I, I, there, there, we, I've had conversations with, with actors and, and other technicians that look at our schedules and, and we're like, you're, we're never going to get this much done in a day. I mean, this was even back when we were like blood rights and, and wake the witch and consistently we made our days, you know, every once in a while we, we, we'd have to push, but, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, ending early. And I think that's because we go in not only with sort of an idea of what we want to shoot, but we've already, without the cast and crew there, been to the location, walked it through, created set di- or shot diagrams. We know what we want going in so we can take the time, if we need to, to play a little bit and find those sort of, you know, you know hoping for happy accidents instead of, you know, needing them to make the day, if that makes sense. Do you guys play around though and try to find those happy accidents? Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I think that we do. I was just kind of thinking sometimes when we get into production, my biggest desire is for the emotional stuff to connect with me on set. And so we would do a lot of takes until I felt like the actors had gotten to a place that I was like, okay, we've gotten at least one, if not two takes that makes sense with that. So then Chad would have the opportunity to tweak, you know, what was the camera move and how does the lighting really look? But the God's truth is too, is that we drive hard when it comes time to run a set, like, hey, let's do this, come on. There's not a whole lot of like, oh gosh, I don't know. What does the lighting really need to look like? What I thought is not working out and then three hours later, you know what I mean? And I'll say this, even when I was working on Redneck, that zombie film, the lighting is what took the most time. The cinematographer looking at it, tweaking it, and literally the crew is just sitting around waiting for a chance to maybe shoot like a page. And so I was like, it's not going to be like that for us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like we would crush away from the creative aspects of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I was like, we're getting this right. Yeah, I think that I, I think a lot of that comes down to the uh, we have always been really conscious of the time, other people's time. We're not, we're not you know, this. I mean, That's true. we can't pay people that what they what they deserve. We can't. Right. I mean, there's there's no way to do that without the without that without those you know cash resources. So what we can, but what, so what we can do is be aware of the, what we're asking, right? And if we're already asking for eight, nine hours of their day, I mean, it doesn't seem fair to, to ask them for another two or three hours so that we can work through something that didn't quite work the way we thought it would work or hoped it would work um, in planning or, you know, to, to adjust the light a little bit differently or to, let's just we're going to need to do that again for some whatever reason was sometime we we did we do we were we have been settling for maybe good enough and maybe to to our detriment in some some places but it's we want we want people to have a good time we want people to feel like they're um that we are that we value uh what not only what they're bringing um on the day but also the time that they're investing in us because it really is, it's, I mean, it's our vision and they're there, they're helping us create that vision. And we, yeah, I think it's something that we, we've, we actually still talk about. I mean, is there, 
I mean, is there a, is there something in the future where we don't do that, where it does become about more specifically about the art? And can we do that with the people that, you know, love us and like working with us? I don't know. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild, filmmakers behind movies like Wake the Witch and Corruptor, which are currently available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Well, then you had the complication, at least on Corruptor, of playing a pretty prominent role. So, I mean, how, how That's was that? That's very sweet of you to say. <laughs> Real talk. Well, I, mean, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, but it, there's a lot of stress uh, when you're acting and you're also, whether you're being cinematographer or like in my case, I've tried to direct myself and it's just an extra complication that's kind of hard to keep your mind on everything you want to keep your mind on. What was your right. experience like there? Very, very much the same. But I, I when when I wasn't behind the camera, um, which I was for all, all, if I was, yeah, if I wasn't in the scene, I was shooting it. When I wasn't shooting it, Dorothy was. So you trust her. And, so that, that, that probably yeah. makes it easier. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, and, and that becomes much, much harder for Dorothy because now she's directing and she's um, acting as cinematographer and operator, um, you know, all at the same time. And there's, there's a lot there. I mean, I can, I can DP and operate. That's, that's fine. And, and, but stack directing on top of that, come on. I mean, that's a huge amount of responsibility. Yeah, so Dorothy, are you telling Chad he's not allowed to act going forward now? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to tell you something. I want Chad Hostile to be a star. He kills on in front of the camera. Yes. So, so no. The next thing we do, I'm going to shoot it and direct it. I'm going to bring Greg Kubitschek in because he is, like, one of our greatest, like, Yoda mentors when it comes to camera work to, like, bolster me up, you know? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. gonna be all chat all the time <laughs> and you had, was it a scottish accent in that one <laughs> yeah yeah a terrible was. one purposefully. Yeah. exactly yeah, yeah I, was, I was thinking like do you have like a mike myers thing where you just oddly have to be scottish all the time when you act? <laughs> that's great those characters um let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the writing of corruptor okay, because yeah. the, what we we want Corruptor was super interesting because we, first of all, we, we had a friend of ours uh, create the bones of it for us. We were like, we, when, when we, when Dorothy and I write, we get way too complicated with a bunch of subplots and a bunch of twists and all this kind of stuff. And we wanted, we wanted this really simple story, this ABCD story that we could then, you know, put the clay around, you know, the style, right. So we had we had a friend of ours um, write that, and then Dorothy wrote the bulk of of, of the screenplay. Um, but I I really wanted to use these two characters that Dorothy wrote uh, for a short that was inside of another movie. I did a shot of movie inside of a movie for this friend of ours, Dustin Ferguson, and in that he was just like, create whatever you want. It do- it doesn't have to make any sense. And so I was like, oh my god. And so I was like, Chad, because we had been walking and he had been doing like this bullshit Scottish accent, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, you should be a priest. We'll get our friend Walter to be a priest. And then you guys can perform an exorcism on this guy, my husband. And he'll be like spitting up water. It'll be great. So they like came over and we like shot that for like 30 minutes. And later it was so good. I was like, it was so funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These two characters and that that's the that was the the birth of Azure and Abel those two guys and and Dorothy was like we're putting Azure and Abel into Corruptor. So suddenly we have this this movie with two tones in it, right? Mm-hmm. We want this sort of kind of serious kind of gut-wrenching sort of possession film which honestly was was more like a Greek tragedy, right? And then you have these two comedic characters sort of on the fringe watching things happen waiting for their moment. So we have this I like to I call it the tonal dissonance of corruptor right and there's and it's hard and i don't think there's a lot of movies that do it well i think i can think of like the guest um from 2000 whatever that was um, 1999 i believe right there we go (laughs) (laughs) exactly right 1984 (laughs) all of those (laughs) and so you have this horror comedy thing going on and it was super fun and it's kind of scary at the same time. It's like, can we do that? Is that cool? Are people going to hate this? And we were like, and there needs to be a lot of blood. 
We don't know why, just because it's cool. Sorry. So that that was that must have been part of the excitement, though. It's just that it's you know in that new territory for you. Like it keeps yeah, you going, keeps yeah. you motivated, just because it's like I don't know if this works, and that's what makes me want to do it. I think, and you, I think if you look at a lot of the things that we've done, I think Dorothy said it earlier. We're we ended up being way more about the art than about the business. If you look at our stuff, we've never made a, a like a straight up horror film. The closest that Cruptor is probably as close as it comes to actually making a horror movie, because um, I think Wake the Witch was more of like sort of a, a dark fairy tale. Uh, Blood Rites was a crime drama, and you know a lot of our a lot of a lot of our shorts um, were yeah more fantasy tilted. We've never made I think a real horror movie, but um, because we there was thing there were we wanted to tell different stories. We wanted to be a little bit different. We ne- we didn't really, honestly, we 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 were kind of false to to the fan base, the horror fan base. We we kind of were like, we're gonna make what we want and wrap it in a horror wrapping, and you're gonna like it. And okay. you, know, <laughs> you know, that's not always the the best direction to take. You know. So just you know, horrible example right here. Just don't don't do what we did. You're gonna be better off. <laughs> Well, so since then, has there been another recalibration? Because I don't, you haven't had a feature since Corruptor, have you? That is correct. We have not. You know, what's interesting is when we, I think, looking back, because we spent 10 years making three features and I would say, and then two strong web series and then a big handful of shorts. And I think when we look back, there's a lot of good stuff. But one of the things that Chad and I love right now is our Heartless web series. So that was a five episode series that it took us like seven years to finish the effects work on like the post work on but we're both super in love with it like a fantasy drama comedy it's like the i think a place where our style came together really well with a story and that's what we're trying right now to turn it into a feature we've cut it all together with the you know the the web seriesy parts taken out and now we're trying to add like a little bit of extra stuff so that we could release it as a feature. Do you ever worry that features are over? I get the sense now, like, is, is there really room for features in the future or is it all just going to be oddly sized web shows? You or know, like if there's, it's oversaturated, like there's, it feels like there last year, so many features, but who is even watching? Yeah, I guess that's what I worry about is everyone, I mean, is the market now just, I want to watch a show. I don't even want to deal with the movie because I want the comfort of, I don't know, multiple hours of this, you know, familiarity or where do you guys feel like we are with all that? I feel like the people have said similar things for the past decade, really. I mean, I remember, um, you know, when uh, really, I mean, the, the internet was supposed to change the way that distribution happens. I think at best, it's, it certainly has changed the way people watch stuff. And, and I think you're right in, to, to an extent in that, um, you know, people, people do like short little bits that they can chew on in between stuff and things when they're doing, you know, and, and yeah, people like sort of that. I don't know if they so much like the long arc storytelling, but they certainly like that comfort of the same characters doing the same in, in those situations. Um, but there, it, there's features have continued and people still love them and they still talk about them. The audience has certainly changed and how we consume those feature films has changed. You know, the, I think, I think we're still trying to figure out. And I say, when I say we, I don't necessarily just mean uh, me and Dorothy. I think, that as creators, we're trying to figure out, you know, how can we get our, our stuff our, uh, in front of eyeballs? I mean, what do people want to see? Um, and that, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the real hard question. I don't know if it's so much about um, how long something is and what, what the form it takes. I think it's, it's more about what are the expectations of the audience and how can we fulfill those expectations? And I don't know. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's really where I'm at right now is, you know, the, the, you know, how, who, who, let me, let me, let me, I'll, I'll step back a little bit and say this, having conversations with other artists about art is so difficult 
because I think I think I think artists have a tendency. One, they don't want to um, they don't want to show weakness, right? And being intimate and open about um, how to make things better, being open uh, and honest about mistakes that you know you've made, being open and honest about not knowing the next step to take or how to, um, how to continue to create art in a way that um, not only satisfies you, but satisfies an audience, because that's really why we're doing this. Nobody really wants to have those conversations. No one wants to appear weak inside of the art that they're creating. And, and I think in order for us to really begin to understand what it is that we need to start doing to meet expectations of audiences and things like that is have is being is being willing and able to have those kind of discussions with each other. And I don't know how many people are ready for that. Maybe at this point, maybe that's a good ending note. Honestly, it's almost like a call to arms for our discussion here, <laughs> you know, um, but where can people go to find everything you guys are working on? Once you are finished with what you're working on now, or once you figure out the answers to all these difficult questions we just discussed. You can go to unfiltered-ent.com. And that is a pretty up-to-date, like well set up breakdown of everything that we have available to watch and where it is. All of the shorts we've made, all of our series, all of our features, all of that stuff. And yeah, that's probably like the best place. Yeah. Well, yeah. Unfiltered-ent.com. Thank you for talking to me today. This has been really exciting to get the chance to get to know you guys better. Thank you for inviting us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Tom, thanks so much for thinking of us. This was awesome and flattering. That was Dorothy Borium and Chad Hofschild. Check out their stuff on Amazon Prime. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Next week, I'll be playing a conversation I had with filmmaker George Jutras. Thank you for listening. I am Tom Noblock. <laughs>